0: Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today is Mrs. Ivy Williams. Ivy is a retired teacher who has some amazing stories to tell of God's intervention in her life and family history. If you've ever been tempted to think that God is indifferent to our welfare, Ivy's story will encourage you to think again. Hello Ivy and welcome to Life Learnings. Hello
1: Barry and I'm very glad to be here.
0: It's great to have you. Ivy, tell me about the car accident that you had late in your teaching career that should have taken your life.
1: Well, Barry, I was teaching at Arthur Phillip High School at Parramatta at the time and uh, I hadn't gone straight home after school because my daughter-in-law was having a party uh, at her place. So it was probably about half past nine and I was travelling down Victoria Road, Pennant Hills, And I had done that journey many, many times. I had a friend who lived in that road, and Victoria Road always had right of way. But as I was travelling about halfway down the road, I just reached over to turn up the volume on my radio to realise what they hadn't warned us about that there were changed traffic conditions and the crossroad now had right of way and I had a give way sign but not realising that that was a new uh, sign I had gone through it and I just looked up in time to see a big four-wheel drive bearing down on me right where I was sitting in the driver's seat. I just had time to think this is going to happen and there's nothing I can do about it. And the next thing I remember was I was lying on the grass at the side of the road. There were ambulances, there were policemen, (laughs) there was just so much activity and people saying to me, "Uh, uh, are you conscious now, do you know who you are? Apparently what had happened, the force of the impact had driven my car right across a very wide grassy verge mown down the front fence of a house Uh, I had gone onto the front lawn of that house then the car had spun around come back again the way it had gone back onto the grassy verge and that's where I was found they examined me and I think were you in the
0: car or outside well
1: I don't know I have no idea Um, They just examined me and said to everybody's amazement, there's nothing wrong with her. So they rang my husband at home and said, your wife has been in an accident, but she's fine. We'll take her to Hornsby Hospital just overnight for observation and you can probably pick her up in the morning. So that's what they did. And... uh, when I woke up in the morning, uh, I felt fine. My husband picked me up. They took me out of the car in a wheelchair, as they usually did. But when I got home, just about one suburb north of Hornsby, when the car stopped, I said to my husband, I cannot move. And that was the beginning of four months of absolute agony. I ended up back in hospital, but they couldn't do very much for me they told me that the force of the impact had wrenched and strained every muscle tendon uh, in my body to the point where I literally could not walk. And I had a whole term off school and uh, it was really very, very painful. But I count my blessings because my son went to see my wrecked car the day after the accident and when he came to see me the next day, he was still white and trembling, and he said, Mum, there is no way you shouldn't have been killed because, he said, your driver's door where you were sitting that took the first, the full force of the impact was stove in and it was over-touching the door on the other side. He said, you should have been squashed. He said, there's no way... You should have lived. And to this day, I don't know whether I was thrown out of the car because I would have been a seat, been wearing a seat belt, so I would have been anchored in that driver's seat. But I, I wasn't squashed at all.
0: So how do you explain your survival?
1: I only explain it by the fact that God had his protecting hand over me. And I am firmly convinced, and so is all of my family, particularly when they heard the condition of my car and the other vehicle, both vehicles were complete write-off, that God had his protecting hand over me. And, of course, that leads me to ask myself, why? What does he want me to do with the rest of my life now that he saved me?
0: Mm. Now, when your son Gavin was four he also was struck by a vehicle
1: absolutely we were outside our church and it was on a main road and he'd been talking to some friends uh, in a car opposite the church thought that we were going home and we might have forgotten about him so a little four-year-old has no road sense, and he just started across the road right into the path of an incoming car which fortunately struck him and threw him backwards. It uh, struck his right foot and churned that up and made a mess of it but had he been thrown forward he definitely would have been killed Mm. and he had a pair of new shoes on that day sturdy leather shoes and they were all chewed about but I kept the shoe And on his 50th birthday, I gave it to him and I said, Gavin, if ever you get discouraged or think that God is not with you, you look at that shoe and say that God saved me. And once again, ask yourself now, why did God save me? What has he wanted me to do with my life? But I firmly believe that God sent his guardian angel to stop my four-year-old son from dying in a car accident.
0: What's Gavin doing today?
1: Gavin is, after being headmaster at all of our private schools in Australia, he's now the education director of all our education programs in South Australia.
0: That's very good. So he's got a very responsible position.
1: He has indeed.
0: So the Lord's preserved his life for a, for a reason, obviously. Now, late in your teaching career, you also had another challenge. This was more insidious than a car accident, but potentially lethal. Tell me about that.
1: Yes. Uh, in retrospect, it's hard to say how I got so far down this track. But I think it was that when you reach middle age and you hear that you're, you know, going to put on weight and that, and I thought, no, that's not going to happen. And I think it started by just dieting, but it got completely completely out of control, and I was anorexic. I am not putting a dramatic uh, stint on this, but I was dying, Um, absolutely I was dying. My family knew it, my little granddaughter who was in primary school would say to me, Nana, our class is praying for you, and I would say, why are they praying for me? And uh, I, my husband would be mowing the front lawn at home and doing the garden because he knew I liked it to be nicely presented, and he told me he'd be crying to himself saying, I don't know why I'm doing this. She's not going to live to see it. I was under the best eating disorder specialist in Macquarie Street. I was under so many psychologists, but it didn't make any difference. Anorexia is actually a mental illness and I had gone a long way down that track. And what people don't understand is that an anorexic can only be understood by another anorexic and because when you look at somebody suffering from anorexia, that isn't what an anorexic sees when they look at themselves. Mm. They always see themselves as needing to lose weight. I think I'd got down to 40-something kilograms with with my frame was uh, absolutely dreadful as well as uh, not eating hardly anything and uh, I exercised. By the hour I had to sign on at school, I was still teaching at half past eight in the morning, I would go to an aerobic class before school. I would do one after school. I would jog five kilometers every morning. And you cannot starve your body. You cannot put it through that exercise routine and not have your body suffer. And I was dying.
0: So you had a distorted sense of yourself.
1: Absolutely, you get a distorted sense of your body image. And that is why anorexics die and they do die because they never see themselves as not needing to lose more weight
0: how did you come through
1: barry that is another way that i know the lord saved my life because i can honestly say anorexic sometimes go into like a care place Mm -hmm. and that helps them to get over their anorexia Uh, but i i never had a moment where I deliberately said to myself, I'm tired of worrying my family sick. It's time their prayers were answered. I'm going to get over this uh, mental illness which I have. I never did that. I never ever made the conscious decision And I don't really know what happened. I think the Lord must have just tapped me on the shoulder and said, once again, I am not going to let you starve yourself to death. And somehow, just gradually, without, I repeat, ever making a conscious decision, I just gradually got back on track. And I thank God for that because I was dying.
0: Mm, It sounds like God has his fingerprints over that story as well.
1: Absolutely.
0: Now, we can't see behind the scenes, can we, in our lives? No, we can't. But as I said, we can often see God's fingerprints in our lives. Tell me about the time that God brought an obligation to your mind that you had forgotten, but it went back decades.
1: Barry, I have never forgotten this experience. I trained at our own private teacher training college, And today, of course, when they graduate, you hire gowns. But for some reason, years ago, when you were a poor college student that didn't have any money left by the time you were due to graduate anyway, uh, you were told that you needed three dresses, three new dresses, one for the grads party, uh, a white one in which to graduate on the Sunday, And a special one for the special uh, Saturday services and of course I had ended up with no money but um, the family helped me buy the material I had a sister who was a wonderful seamstress and she made me three beautiful dresses uh, but one of them she couldn't quite finish and there was a sewing teacher at the college where I was training, a lovely lady and so I took this stress to her and I said look um, I'm not a seamstress I never have been could you finish this for me and I will pay you for it and she said certainly dear and she did that but then in the excitement of graduation I completely forgot that I hadn't paid her and it must have been 25 or 30 years later that one day just out of the blue I heard a voice say to me, you never paid that lady. And I thought, where did that come from? That was a lifetime ago. And so I dismissed it, but the thought kept coming back, you never paid that lady for your dress. And I thought, this is peculiar. So I said to my husband, I told him the story, I said, but I keep getting reminded all these years later That I never paid that lady. And he said, well, you've got to pay her now. I said, oh, no. I said, all I know about her now is that she came from New Zealand, and I don't know, she probably went back, and she wasn't young at the time, so she could even be dead now. So, you know, it's not worth worrying about. A voice spoke to him, and he kept insisting, find out where she is and you've got to pay her so feeling rather foolish I rang the college and they said yes she had come from New Zealand and she'd gone home so we rang the organisation for which she had worked the head office and we said this, is this lady back in New Zealand they said yes and so we said well where is she they, they said well she's still alive and she's in a retirement home here So we said, could you give us the address? And they gave us the address. So still feeling rather foolish, I sat down and wrote her a letter and reminded her that she had helped me and I hadn't paid her and that we had worked out about what we owed her in this new currency and uh, we sent the letter off. And to my amazement, about a week later we got a letter from the lady in the retirement home and she said, oh, thank you so much, she said, for that money. She said, I was listening to our um, religious radio channel and she said they were making an appeal for funds. And she said, I'm on a pension now and uh, if you know, if you're on a pension to retirement home, you get about $10 a week left for yourself And she said, I thought, oh, I just want to give something to this program. But she said, I didn't have any money left. So she said, I prayed a specific prayer to God, and I said, dear God, you know that I want to help this cause, but you also know that out of my pension, I can't do it. Would you please arrange for someone to send me some money so I can support this cause. And she said, a few days later, she said, your letter came. She said that was a direct answer to God's prayer. And that made my husband and I say to ourselves, when you hear that voice of God, which we call our conscious speaking to us, don't ignore it. Mm. Because there's a verse that says... Before they call I will answer and while they are yet speaking will I hear? And I'm sure that the very time that she was praying, that voice was speaking to me and telling me what I should do. And Barry, I have never forgotten that.
0: Mm. Be pretty hard to forget, I'd imagine.
1: Absolutely.
0: Ivy, this seems like a good time to look at the passage of scripture that means so much to you. Would you read that passage?
1: Yes, Barry, I certainly will. It's found in Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. And this, I can say, I have proved in my life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And Barry, uh, looking back on my life and the life of my family, I can honestly say he has directed our paths. Mm. It wasn't always down the path of our choosing. It wasn't always a path where we knew where it would lead. But in retrospect, it was always the right path. And you say to yourself... I would not choose to be led any other way. And believing that He is directing your path is what we call faith. Mm. And we have to show faith. I read a definition of faith that says faith is believing in advance what only makes sense in reverse. And time and time again, I can testify that that is true.
0: Mm. Now, I usually ask people on this program to tell me what they've learned from their lives towards the end of the interview, but you've told me some wonderful (laughs) stories, and so I'd like to do that now because I think it would help our listeners to make sense of some of your remaining stories and what you've just told me.
1: Well, I think it's a summation of what I've just said, that always trust God no matter what and always to know that nothing is impossible with God hmm. and that's why as human beings we find that hard to grasp that nothing's impossible with God but I know that nothing is impossible
0: hmm.
1: and so I think that I would say to, pe- to listeners just believe that and also one of my favourite uh, texts is I will never leave you or forsake you okay, yes Sometimes we feel that he has left us, but he hasn't. And another one, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Mm. I mean, you put all of those together and you know that you have a God who cares about you and who loves you uh, no matter what. Yes. And when
0: we talked pr- prior to the interview, you said something to me that has stuck in my mind. You said that God is Lord of the molehills as well as the mountains and the
1: valleys. What's that about? Oh, well, you know, we think that God is always with us in the, the big experiences of life, you know, when we're up on a mountaintop or when we're down in a valley. But I believe firmly that he is interested in the little things of our life. Mm-hmm. I remember once I was with my sister and I drove into a parking uh, lot where it was hard to get parking, but there was one there. And when I drove in, I said, oh, thank you, Lord, for finding me this space. And my sister said, oh, I say that. But she says, my husband says to me, don't be silly, God isn't interested in finding you a parking space. But, you know, I think he is interested in little things. After all, he says... um, Two sparrows can't fall to the ground that I don't know about it. The hairs of your head are numbered. And, uh, you know, I uh, don't know anything about how a car works except that the engine's at the front and the boot's at the back. But often I would be driving quite a long way to, to school and not taking any notice of anything and a voice would say to me, ''Look at your petrol gauge.'' and I would look and it would be just on dead empty and I would just have enough petrol to roll into the nearest service station on the way to work.
0: So God's interested in us. Oh,
1: of course in he is. every aspect
0: of our lives. And
1: then another, um, when I was teaching at um, Parramatta and uh, we were living uh, at Thornley and it was a long trip both ways and I said to my husband, I think we ought to buy a house nearer Strathfield because for years I've been up and down. So we started looking in places, you know, right across the other side of Sydney. And to cut a long story short, we bought where we ended up at Asquith, and that was 20 minutes further north and added 20 minutes either way to the journey that I wanted to make shorter. And when we entered the house and settled in, I looked at my husband and I said, why did we buy here? I wanted less driving to school and now I've got more. And you say, well, God's not interested in, you know, where you buy a house. Barry, in retrospect, he knew where we needed to be. Both of my sons ended up going to Macquarie University, which by car was 20 minutes door to door, They could never have done that if I'd bought a house way on the other side of Sydney that we were looking at. And I firmly believe that God chose that house knowing that in many ways it was the exact place where we should be. So I am convinced that God is the God of the molehills in our life. And I think, Barry, we should remember that often we only turn to him in the mountaintops or the valleys but we should turn to him every day in our life and I read that we should thank God every morning that he's taken us safely through another night Mm. and our prayer every morning at home now is I know God that nothing will happen to me today that you haven't allowed to happen and we give My husband and I give ourselves and every member of our family into his keeping for just that day.
0: Mm -hmm. Before we go to our break, I want you to tell me about your son Dale's change of direction at university when everything seemed to indicate that he was going in the right direction.
1: Yes, I will never understand this, but uh, we know that we won't understand many things in this life till we get to heaven, and then they become clear. When my son Dale, who was at Macquarie Uni, well, both my sons would work at the um, uh, sanitary hospital at Burunga in their holidays, and um, Dale um, evidently they noticed him there, and they saw this Christian young man And they asked him what he wanted to do in life. And at that stage, he said he might do physiotherapy. So the hospital management uh, just watched what he was doing. And they said to him, when he came to his final year of high school, they said, Dale, if you get a good enough exam result to go to Sydney University to do physiotherapy, when you graduate, we will guarantee you employment... And if there are any fees to pay, although our boys went through uni when Gough Whitland had made it free, but they're always incidentals, we will pay that. And we had been praying about this and we just got down on our knees and we said, thank you, God. You've answered all our prayers. He's going to get employment. He's going to get uh, any fees paid. And, uh, and we just prayed that he would get that good result and uh, he did. He was accepted into uh, Sydney University to do physiotherapy. About two weeks after he had started I noticed that every time he came home he was very quiet and um, he's always been very sensitive and I came into his bedroom one morning and he was sitting there and he was looking so miserable I thought he might burst into tears and I said, Darl, what's the problem? And this is what he told me. Now, they don't do this now but they used to then. He said that... Um, you, might,
0: you might need not to make this too graphic.
1: All right, <laughs> No, but when they went into the first class of the year they were presented with a body. People do donate their body to uni for research they were given a textbook and about the six or eight students doing the course were told that they were to dissect the body and find all the systems um he said to me mum I can't do that And I knew he couldn't. Had I known that was involved, we just thought physiotherapy was walking around the wards in a nice white coat and, you know, giving people massages or something. And he said, Mum, it's a lady there, he said, and it's you. He said, "And I can't do it. So I sent a quick prayer to God and I said to him, look, go and see your registrar, tell her how you feel and we'll pray about it and we'll be guided by her answer. I really thought she would say to him, Dale, you haven't given it long enough. You will get used to it. You know, grow up. So he went and saw her and she took one look at his white face and she said, Dale, this course is not for you. She said, give it up. And he came home and uh, I said, uh, okay, dear. What next? Well, he said, Mum, I also got into Macquarie University to do economics and accounting. That was my second choice. So I said, well, apply to them. So he rang them up, and they said, well, you know, you're two weeks late. Why are you applying now? And he said, because I can't cut up dead bodies. And they said, come in tomorrow, and we'll register you. His brother was already at Macquarie Uni doing teaching, But, you know, Barry, since then, Dale has, um, he completed his BA in economics and accounting. He became a graduate with the uh, Australian Society of Accountants by working very hard uh, after work for eight years. He graduated, I think it was with credit or something, from the University of Edinburgh with a Master's of Business Administration, Barry, that's what he should have been doing all the time. That's what God wanted him to do. God never wanted him to do physiotherapy. And I still don't understand While we were saying to God, you know, this is an answer to our prayer, God's saying, no, it's not. I have another direction. I want another road down which you have to travel. I still don't understand it, but maybe he has to teach us sometimes that our ways aren't his ways. And sometimes I think of it this way, he closes a door in your face and leaves you standing outside it, wondering what is happening. And then he will say to you, look behind you. And you look behind you and another door has opened. And Barry, we haven't got time to tell about our older son, but by a very circuitous route, God led him where he wanted him to. So that is why one of my favorite passages is, he will direct your paths.
0: Mm. Very interesting. I'm Barry Harker and my guest today on Life Learnings is Mrs. Ivy Williams. Ivy has been telling me some amazing stories of God's intervention in her life. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, Ivy will tell me about her early life and teaching career. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456, or from outside of Australia on country code 61 2. Four nine seven three three four five six. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3abnaustralia, all one word, .org.au Our postal address is 3abnaustralia, Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined me on Life Learnings, I'm Barry Harker, and my guest today is Mrs. Ivy Williams. Ivy has been relating some amazing stories of God's intervention in her life and in the life of her family members. Ivy will now tell us about her early life and teaching career. Ivy, tell me a little about your family and early life.
1: Well, Barry, I consider myself terribly fortunate to have grown up in a country town all my primary school years. It was a town called Tumut, uh, which is an Aboriginal name, being meaning resting place by the river, a very pretty town skirted by the Tumut River. And uh, as a child... I didn't realise how difficult it was for parents in those days. Uh, Parents of that era will resonate with this because if you were a businessman, wages weren't big and um, everything was done manually. It was a very hard life. Instinctively, even as a little child, I knew that if your father got out of work It would just be catastrophic because Barry there were there were no social services so what did you do fortunately country people are are very uh, hospitable people in that they will look after each other but you don't, don't like to be thrown on charity so it was extremely difficult looking back for my parents my mother's health wasn't good everything was done manually You boiled up the copper on a Monday morning to do the washing and I remember in the kitchen there was what they call the big old black meta stove that had the firebox which uh, had to be kept going all day. And, and of course, that meant that in the backyard you had to have a big wood heap and that wood had to be chopped and because the, the winters were very cold... In one room of the house there was a great big fireplace and that that took a lot of wood uh, so that you could keep warm. So for parents it was extremely difficult. But as a child I wasn't aware of all this and they say give me a child till he is seven and I don't care what you do with him after uh, because you have set the foundation for what he will probably be in life. And some of my teaching down the line showed me that. So I I was very happy. I had five brothers and sisters to squabble with. I had a mum and dad who loved me. And uh, children were safe. We could just roam around the district. There was no crime. People never locked their houses. I mean, why would you shut your house? There was nothing to fear. And uh, everything that we did as children was very active. We played hopscotch. uh, We all had skipping ropes. uh, We just um, went up and ran round the park. And and, uh, so you never saw an obese person and you never saw an obese child because everything was manual labour and activity. Mm. And so I just remember a very happy childhood and a, a mother who taught me, as a very young child, a love of reading and a love of poetry, far beyond my years. And who also, with her brood of children that, uh, you know, were just poor, really, uh, locked into this country town, and she just wanted us to know that we could rise above our environment. Of course, we had our own training college, And to go to that when you're a poor kid in Tumut was like reaching for the moon. Do you know, Mary, that because of my mother's praying, her planning, her plotting, she never asked God to do anything that she didn't work with him to bring about? I wish I could tell you some stories, but we haven't got time. But five of those six children ended up at this training college as a result of our mother's prayers, her example and her telling us that we could rise above the environment that we had as a child.
0: Ivy, your mother died when she was 54. Yes. And you were only a teenager at the time. I was. What impact did that have on you?
1: Well, Barry, uh, it helped me to realise that in many ways I was alone now, uh, my sisters came to live with me for a little while, but then they went, had to go about their education. And for 12 months, I board, boarded unhappily, very unhappily, with a couple that didn't know care whether I studied or I didn't. And I, I was only 15 uh, at the time when Mother died, and by the time I was boarding, I was in the last year of high school, and... Uh, And it wasn't that my family didn't care about me, but in those days, uh, you know, communication was by that red phone box on the corner if there happened to be one in the district, if you happened to have the right money to use it, and if it happened to be working. Otherwise, you just had to write letters. And, of course, they were all busy with what they were doing in life. But um, uh, for me, studying uh, was something I had to do Uh, failing was not an option and in that last year of high school the Lord blessed me with the most wonderful friends at Hornsby Girls Car High that anybody could ever have but I just knew that if I was going to get through the studies get the exams uh, such a place where I could be accepted to do teacher training that I was on my own and that sort of set the pattern for later life when things got difficult I knew that I could cope uh, with God's help and losing mum so early which I will never understand but um, I just know that it developed that intestinal fortitude in me to know that I could cope in life when things weren't going terribly well but of course I only did that with God's help as well.
0: It was still pretty tough to lose your mother, though, wasn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and we all adored her. My mother had been the spiritual leader of our home because uh, when I was a very young child, my father stopped practising his faith and so mum was the, the one who uh, just held up to us uh, to believe in God And she was our spiritual center. And uh, when she died, it's a great credit to her that the members of her family just remembered what she told them Mm. about God.
0: Yeah. Why did you choose teaching as a career?
1: Barry, I didn't. (laughs) and This is another thing. I will never understand it. I was the youngest of six. So there was a time when the others were all at school, Tumor High School, and I was home alone. From the very minute my waking thought, I just knew I was going to be a teacher. I would put the doll up beside the fireplace, and the, in summer, country people whitened their fireplace on the inside and sort of blackened around the outside, and it made a wonderful blackboard, and I would spend all day when I was four teaching. And, and I don't know where it came from. I just knew for my first waking moment I was going to be a teacher. That was it. And I thank God for that because some people spend a lot of time trying this and trying that. But no, I was going to be a teacher and, and, and there was no doubt about it. I didn't know how I was going to do it, but that was it.
0: Tell me a little bit about your teaching career.
1: Well, Barry, I taught in our own private high school. Um, You say
0: our own private high school. You're talking about the Seventh Adventist. Yes, Seventh
1: Day Adventist High School at Strathfield. My speciality was English. When I was allowed to, for when I first graduated, it was a much smaller school and a very small staff at what we call the Burwood School. And um, as a young teacher out, I was out teaching at twenty, which you couldn't do today. The young teachers seemed to be asked to teach what other people didn't want to teach. So I've honestly taught every subject in the curriculum except woodwork. But by the time I got to Strathfield High School, I was specialising in what was so dear to my heart, English, where I taught literature and poetry. And uh, that was a wonderful time. And uh, But at the end of doing that for 20 years, um, I resigned and my husband and I travelled... Uh, for quite a few months to many places that taught us so much. And when I came back at um, Pennant Hills at that time, there was a school which was for uh, juvenile offenders.
0: So we're talking about the mid-1960s yes, now, aren't we? and
1: uh, they were advertising for youth workers and I thought, well, that's a change from teaching and I applied for that. But when the office staff saw my resume... They said to the headmaster at this facility, she would do better as a teacher. So anyway, they interviewed me and I became a teacher. Barry, this was a situation where children from six to 12 who were chronic truants, which was an offence, were serving out what they called a remand sentence of 12, six, 12, or nine months, whatever they were given. And uh, Now, these children had been truanting, but, of course, when they truanted, they petty-stole, they (laughs) stole cars, they got into all sorts of, you know, petty crime. So they were given this sentence um, where they were sort of locked up in this situation. But, Barry, it didn't work at any level, A, These children, as I mentioned before, give me a child till he's seven, these children were the product of a home that never cared about them, whether they're an abusive home, but you tell me what makes a little boy of nine and ten sleep under bridges in winter rather than go home and is on the streets, living on the street by his wits, petty thieving and whatnot. And so they were brought to this place, but... It didn't work, Barry, because when they'd served that sentence, they went straight back to the situation that had produced them in the first place. So you had recidivists that kept coming back. That should have told us something.
0: What was your approach to these students?
1: Um, Care for them, show that you cared for them and that you loved them. The The plus side of them being there was that while they were there... They had a good bed in the dormitory at night, a staff who cared about them. They got three good meals a day. They had to go to school where the staff cared about them so for the time they were there, they had the care and the nurture that they didn't have outside. Then later on, for nine years, at Parramatta, there was the other age group from 12 to 16 who weren't going to school, who were runaways, who were picked up living with the prostitutes at King's Cross and they were charged with being exposed to moral danger.
0: I think we might be drifting into a sensitive area.
1: Yes, well, we'll just leave it there. But once again, the point I might want to bring out is that those girls, they were only living on the street... And had been taken in by the prostitutes to care for them, really, as a product of their home life. And so, I would just like to make the point that the best thing we can do for our children, even to, more today with drugs and and abusive families, is to give your child, particularly in those early years, a a childhood where he's valued and he's loved. And you know, Barry, what horrified me when I did that course in special education, which I did, um, I thought that if a child had been brought up in an abusive home, they would say, well, I didn't like it, so when I have a home, I will have a caring home. No, statistics prove that in well over 90% of the time children will produce the sort of home in which they grew up because that's all they've had modeled to them mm. and that is a tragedy of it and that is why our children deserve to have a home where they're loved and they're cherished otherwise Barry who pays for it society pays for it
0: Mm. how did you come to be doing some extra training in special ed
1: well uh, when i'd been uh, teaching the girls uh, from 12 to 16 and uh, it was difficult believe me very difficult Uh, these institutions had been run by what was called yaks and docks and i think now it's called the department of social service but the inspector from the education department came out and said we are going to take these places back under our banner and I said good and he said you have I said well what will I do now if you're closing down he said well you have been doing special education for years now he said every year we release 25 teachers on full pay to do special education He said, you go to the registrar and you say that you're going to do this. I went to her and she said, no, your basic training is only in a private college. No way. I went back to the inspector, who apparently was happy with what I'd been doing. He said, we'll see about that. So I think after that, it was a foregone conclusion. And for 12 months, I... uh, had to go back to being a student. <laughs> it nearly killed me. I was 54 at the time and I had to go back to assignments. It was it was only a 12-month course, so it was full on, believe me. And I burnt the midnight oil many a time. I had to go back to prac teaching. I had to go to special education, you know, schools and go back to being a prac teacher myself. But I'm just saying this very humbly, giving God all the credit because I prayed a lot and at the end of that I graduated with distinction and then the education department said now you are fully recognised with the Department of Education and we'll give you credit for all those years of teaching you have done and that's how I ended up teaching at uh, Arthur Phillip High School at Parramatta until I retired. The day you turned 60, you were finished. (laughs) Uh, Your employment was terminated. And uh, so I can look back on God leading me into that special education area because I hope I was able to help a few of the children who needed special ed.
0: Mm. Uh, those children have very high needs, and it's a really it's a really important work.
1: And in today, our Barry, today they still do. Uh, they don't have special places for a lot of them now. Um, they're in the public schools. They're often the students who get expelled or suspended, which doesn't really solve anything. But um, I have a granddaughter's husband who trained in special education and at one stage he had a group of six to eight of these pupils that couldn't cope in the mainstream and they had just withdrawn them and they're giving them their own special program. But now he goes around from high school to high school trying to help the staff deal with these children who I reiterate often because of their background and their home life do they're the uh, behavioural problems in the school.
0: Hmm. Ivy, after you retired, you actually spent three months in Thailand. What were you doing there?
1: Yes, Barry, about three to four months. Well, there was an Australian uh, who, uh, well, she still is working in Thailand and will do it there until she dies, but she'd come home on furlough and she was talking about how she was helping the Karen people who were refugees in Thailand. The Thai government didn't have the facilities, perhaps, to look after them. Uh, So non-government organisations had uh, taken up that challenge and she was such a one. And she'd got uh, some of the young people uh, out of the refugee camps and into a school that she had built. And uh, she was providing an education for them so that they would be able to go on to higher education. But, of course, to do that, they had to pass their final exams, and the final exams were done in English. And so uh, I went out for uh, three or four months to help a group of these young people who were coming up to that exam uh, with their English, how to cope, how to express themselves, because... um, They were trilingual and English wasn't their first language. And as a foreign language, English is one of the most difficult to learn because of the tenses and the grammar. And uh, so I considered it a privilege to be able to go and help them. And they were absolutely the loveliest people. And those young people, they were just so well worth helping because they were just so tremendously grateful for anything you did for them, and uh, the Thai people have a tremendous respect for age. Uh, if an older person walks back, the Thai people just put their hands together and bow very respectfully. And um, age is something which they consider to be honoured and upheld, and uh, they. Consider it a privilege to take their older people into their home and look after them until they die, which, of course, is wonderful because there's no social service. And so that time spent with those Karen people, when we left, we were all crying because, uh, you know, we would formed such a strong bond with these people. And this lady, Helen, is still out there because they're still out... Uh, refugees there uh, needing help and she has said that she has no ties back here in Australia now and she will die working to make sure that they get a chance and I feel very grateful to God that I had a small part of helping her.
0: Ivy there's some wonderful stories to come I'm sure but we've run out of time and so I'm just running with you would like to pray for us now.
1: Yes Barry Heavenly Father, I can look back a life of three generations of your leading. I can honestly say I saw God's hand. And my prayer is that our listeners also dedicate their life to you, that they will be able to, in their life, to look at things that happen and say that they truly saw your hand in their life also. Amen.
0: Amen. I'm Barry Harker. And my guest today in Life Learnings has been Mrs. Ivy Williams, who has related lots of amazing stories of God's intervention in her life and affairs, both large and small. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Ivy. As we uh, go out today, we're going to be um, playing a song that's one of your favourites.
1: My very favourite.
0: And it's called All the Way My Saviour Leads Me, and it's by Kelly Smith Mara. Remember to tune in again next time as I talk with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you. In today's program, Ivy Williams quoted from the New King James Version of the Bible. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. One of the great invitations of the Bible is found in Matthew 7 and verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. In any time of need we can ask God for help. If we ask in faith, He will hear us. If you are suffering moments of distress or despair, Why not ask God to help you? Talk to God like you would talk to a friend and tell him your need. May God bless you as you consider this gracious invitation.